welcome to Payments Insights. I'm Jyoti Ramboy, editor at the Payments Association and your host for today's episode. With me in the studio today are Gary Palmer, founder and CEO of Payor, and Phil Mockhub, founder and CEO of Nomas Digital. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Today, we're going to be discussing some of the challenges around cross-border payments currently facing the industry. But before we get started, Gary and Phil, do you want to tell our listeners a bit about yourself and what your company does? Phil? Yeah, thank you. Nomos uh, Digital is um, an Intuit uh, financial market infrastructure that's designed to provide the functions that are currently um, in cross-border and correspondent banking, which includes cross-border payments plus liquidity and cash management. That's what we are. Okay, Gary? Sure. My company has sort of disassembled and reassembled the entire value chain of classic correspondent banking and cross-border payments and built software to automate the process from beginning to end for all participants in the ecosystem and then supports traditional correspondent banking and liquidity constructs, as well as new paradigms such as MasterCard cross-border services. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, So to begin with, um, can you tell me some of the challenges around cross-border payments? The principal one that everyone uh, highlights is cost. I mean, the average cross-border payment, I believe, is roughly 4,000 times more expensive than a domestic one. Oh, wow. Um, uh, there are other issues such as uh, transparency, i.e. knowing where the payment is, and to some extent, uh, timing, which is that there are delays, uh, particularly uh, of an unpredictable nature. Those are the principal issues. So I uh, agree in part, but I would suggest that if we really look at how cross-border payments work, from an originating institution and a correspondent bank, over the last 50 years, there have been very few changes. And the fundamental problems exist around uh, three large buckets. One is safety, the other is efficiency, but within efficiency, it means speed and cost to financial institutions. And the problem is, the first one is the safety element. If we really step back and think about it, Unlike 50 years ago, where we had wars in Southeast Asia, we had the Soviet Union, dictators in, in, in South America, cross-border payments were nascent, almost zero. And so the provision of liquidity came largely from central banks. If we fast forward 50 years, the global economy is, consists of about $150 trillion of cross-border payments. And sadly, or the fact is, is that None of the software used by originating institutions, those who, that offer cross-border payments, and those that clear cor- uh, cross-border payments, correspondent banks, the software that's a part of their core bank systems, digital bank platforms, back office systems, were never designed or built for cross-border. So the majority of their functional, the majority of the tasks related to compliance, risk, and processes are manual. And this is part of the root cause of why these payments are so slow and they're so expensive and they're fraught with mistakes is because there's humans touching everything along the way. 
And because these systems are disparate and isolated, there is no sharing of data or very limited sharing of data. And so the system is based on trust. The correspondent bank is trusting that foreign financial institutions are doing a good job at money laundering or preventing money laundering and terrorist fin- preventing terrorist finance versus having the ability to execute their own policies and procedures to protect themselves. So this, the lack of software from beginning to end built for every participant in the ecosystem is the root cause of why these payments are high risk, why they're so expensive, and why they're so slow. So are you essentially saying it's the infrastructure that we have? 100% infrastructure. Okay. So then what solutions do you think is required to address these challenges? I think you have to come to a common view if you want to come to the same answer. <laughs> and uh, I don't think Gary and I are of the same view. Um, we uh, we agree, I, I think we agree that there are three areas in which the problems need to be addressed. Uh, the first is in data, right? And that is a big issue about what, what Gary is focused on. Um, the other area is um, to do with liquidity. Uh, which I believe um, the BIS, um, McKinsey's, um, and my own experience of talking to a lot of banks, believes it's about 60% of the cost to structure. Um, And if that is true, uh, which I believe it to be, then um, data isn't the answer to solving the problem. It's about how do you resolve the need for the volume of liquidity that is required on an interchange model. And the reason that is, is because the correspondent banking model uh, fragments it across hundreds of thousands of accounts, um, liability accounts, in which there is risk attached. And until you can take away that risk and the need for this fragmentation, you can't start to address the problems. Okay. Do you yeah, agree? W- not at all. We, we disagree that liquidity is the issue. Let me give you some examples why. First, in the classic correspondent banking model, uh, the large global correspondent banks have uh, Nostra-Vostra accounts and massive liquidity pools on a global basis. Uh, on the, in, the, in the one-off models where there's a bank in one country that's making payments to only three or four countries and they're establishing their own correspondent bank relationships in those countries, their correspondent banks are requiring that they buy the currency in advance. So the funds are there. So let me give you an example of of how the problem manifests itself. If you're a bank in Brazil and you only make payments to the United States, so you you only need one correspondent bank in the U.S., you find a correspondent bank, which is hard to do for all of the Uh, issues that we solve for, which are about transparency and not just data sharing, but actually executing on the data. But anyway, you find the bank, you finally convince them to open an account for you, and you give them some dough, you buy dollars. So now your dollars are sitting there in the United States. Well, when your customer presses send on a website to send $252,000 to the United States, in their mind, the money is flying its way through the universe and going to arrive in the United States. The fact is, the money's already there. So what's the root cause of the problem? When the customer press send on a website, since there is no software that's a part of a core bank system that, un- that has been configured to automate the risk rules, the compliance rules of the originating institution in the central bank, an order goes to the back room of the bank and a human being looks at that order and says, customer A wants to send money to the United States. It's $252,000. What are all the things I need to do? So now they go through a process of 
executing those rules, which are all manual. And they make mistakes. They don't get to it on the same day. Sometimes it takes a week before they get to it. And then they eventually turn to an interface and they manually type the transaction into a terminal. And it shows up a few minutes later at the bank in the United States. But they may not pull the message down for a day or two. And when they pull it down, sometimes they'll ask for more data and more information, and sometimes they won't. But the point is, every single thing I've described is a manual process. So it is the fundamental issue is the lack of process automation on the, from the originating perspective as well as from the receiving or correspondent bank perspective. Um, my view is that Gary is looking upon this as what I would call the top level. And the top level is uh, is the bank account structure, right? As what the credit balances are, which are the liabilities. Um, and what he's saying is, is the improvements in that top line of activity, the um, whether that's remittances or otherwise, um, is substantially data driven. I would agree with him. Okay, uh, but I do not think that's where the costs are. Right? Okay. Um, I, I believe that there's the the asset side of the equation which is, although the balances show that there are, uh, in, in those accounts, the underlying bank structures have to have liquidity management. Although Wyman's assessment was that the top 30 banks require for payments a sum total of cost $21 billion per annum, which scales up to the other 3,000 banks at roughly $150 billion of cost for liquidity in banks per annum. Now, they've done that detailed analysis. Um, so anybody who tells me that liquidity isn't an issue basically doesn't understand the problem, in my view, right? Unless, you know, you think that McKinsey's is wrong, unless you think uh, Oliver Wyman is wrong, unless you think the three bank CEOs, including the largest uh, transaction bank in the world, who is my advisor, uh, says that that's not the case, but they all tell me it is. I spoke to the head of liquidity at JP Morgan, the head of liquidity at HSBC. They all say this is the issue. Okay. So let's let's look at it. Uh, let's define liquidity. Uh, the issue, uh, first of all, uh, there have been numerous reports that have a different perspective on the cost allocation. Not all of them allocate 60% as liquidity. But in fact, and in fact, a more uh, accurate definition of the word is not liquidity, it's the foreign exchange cost. So there's a difference between liquidity and the cost of the capital. So we've got to separate the two. And the reason why uh, we some call liquidity and confuse liquidity with the cost of the capital is because the classic model required all of this, uh, this advanced purchase of a foreign currency. And at whatever rate you purchase to that now, you've now locked in that rate for yourself. And you, when you're selling that currency in the future as a part of a cross-border payment, you are now perhaps making more money if the currency trade has gone in your favor or you've make, made less money. And in fact, in some cases, you've lost money. So now the cost of that foreign transaction uh, and if you want to be competitive, you've got a price to the current market. So in order to complete the trade and to stop losing money on the foreign exchange that's gone against you, you sell it at a loss or you complete the transaction at a loss. So if you lump that into liquidity, I get it. It's a part of the puzzle, but it's not liquidity. It's the cost of foreign currency. So what's the solution? The solution are new models and new paradigms. And the, perhaps the most innovative new paradigm is what MasterCard is providing, where since MasterCard has global liquidity and nearly 100 different currencies, 
uh, and massive infrastructure from which they can maintain very efficient liquidity and they set foreign exchange rates, they don't require originating institutions who are, who are processing across MasterCard cross-border to buy a lot of foreign currency. So every transaction occurs in real time at a spot rate, and therefore you don't have this massive liquidity cost or FX cost. So uh, it's these new paradigms and new, these, these new constructs that allow for a far more efficient way of liquidity be, to, being, uh, uh, to be delivered. And that's why we sort of de-emphasize liquidity because we're supporting the new paradigms. And then the older paradigms have the advantage of all of this process automation that, that, that takes that 40, and Phil's words, 40, I would say as much as 80% of the cost out of the transaction. Because in some of the studies, the cost of treasury operations, the cost of compliance operations, the cost of payment operations, the cost of operate technical operations are far more than the cost of liquidity or FX. And that's what we solve for. So for both of you then, what role will AI play in these new paradigms, as you mentioned? I think Gary's better at this one than me because he's handling the data side and I'm not. Um, and therefore, we're not losing, losing a lot of AI in what I would call the liquidity side. But to the extent that it could be there, it can be used to analyze liquidity requirements okay. on a better basis so you have improved levels of efficiency of it. But I think it's got limits to, to that. I think it's much more on uh, Gary's area that you've got uh, advantages. I would agree with your comment about helping understand sort of the uh, the currency needs and the liquidity needs and, and the uh, process automation part, the most likely uh, role for AI will be in helping to identify, predict, and stop transactions that might otherwise slip through a more common risk or um, fraud prevention tool set. Okay. And then sort of going back to the idea of liquidity in that, in the current platforms that we do have, how much do they need to evolve or are they completely redundant and we actually need to think about new concepts and new models? We've got uh, a number of um, um, paths. The first we've got is there's very little infrastructure at the uh, international level. We have a lot of domestic systems. Domestic systems are nearly all peer-to-peer -peer models, right, with, with data integration tightly done. Uh, everything pretty works relatively well at the domestic level. We don't have pooling of liquidity, except at central bank levels. Um, but to a great extent, that's not a great problem. Um, but the cross-border, we've got almost nothing. We've got an antiquated model of filling in forms and sending them electronically called SWIFT. Uh, and we have a settlement system uh, for FX called CLS, which has actually uh, got credit risk in it. And it uh, uses um, as much, there is as much FX going outside it as there was when CLS was first envisaged to actually eliminate it. So it's not an answer to it. It's, it's an interim capability. So we need new infrastructure. Now, there's not just new infrastructure to what I would call meet the baseline utility functions, but we've also got new technologies coming along. Uh, we've got the requirement for digital money. So new forms in which that would take place. And we need infrastructure which is agnostic to whichever form of money we want to put over it. We don't want to build it just for one type of money because we've got massive transitional issues. And in fact, the whole problem we have is not about where we go to, but how do we get there? 
right? And that is about how you take the large GSIBs, that's the major banks, who, by comparison, the top fintechs, top 30 fintechs, they do 10 trillion a year of transactions. But the top 30 banks do 2.7 quadrillion. Quadrillion. It's three orders of magnitude greater. And therefore, we have to understand that change can only happen at the top 30 because they have so much volume. And we must ask ourselves, how do those banks transform themselves? And it has to be through transforming workflows and by fitting in with the existing regulatory mandated programs. If they have to switch out all that tech, it won't happen. Do you agree? I don't. Uh, Two things. Number one, we have built the first ever end-to-end infrastructure for the entire cross-border ecosystem. First time ever. So for originating institutions, clearing institutions, what we call payment channels. Uh, And if you think about SWIFT, there's one payment channel. It's to a bank account. We enable the originating institution to give their customers the ability, of course, to send money to a bank account, but also to send money to a mobile money account, a digital account, or pick up cash. And we've built the infrastructure that allows central banks to have transparency and control over. Uh, This has not been an inconsequential four and a half years of building our platform and getting live. But the answer is, or, or how do you prove it works? It's in the result. So a couple of months ago, we did a uh, demo transaction for a bank in the United States. At 7.02 p.m. on a Friday night, which is 19.02 hours, we sent five euros to Portugal. It arrived at 7.06 p.m., four minutes later, which is six minutes past midnight on a Saturday in Portugal. SWIFT is closed. Banking systems are closed. Tech systems are closed. And the money arrived magically. Not only did it arrive, but we sent a text message to the sender and the recipient to confirm receipt. And we also, the recipient received their money without their bank charging them an international cross-border fee. And on top of that, the FX rate was the same rate Citibank charges its best customers. So the smallest institution on the planet can now offer a product that's better than the biggest banks on the planet. It gets there faster, in the middle of the night, over the weekends, comparable FX, and no fees to recipients. This is what fixing the infrastructure at a software level does for everyone in the ecosystem. I I observe that what Gary says is, is, is evidently true. You can see other parties doing that, people like Remitly. Just before I came here, I sent twenty pounds to t- Tanzania, and it got there in under a minute. Okay, into the recipient's account. Um, so the what we call the front end of this payment system model is working increasingly well, and I'm sure that the addition of software platforms like Gary's will speed that process up. What I'm concerned is what's happening at the back end. Okay. Right, the underlying plumbing. All right, because um, if you hold money in a bank account, it's got a charge, it's got a capital charge, it's got a liquidity charge, and it's got a risk charge, right? And you can't get away from that because that has to come into the system at some point, right? Um, and, and what you've got on top of that is you've got interconnectedness charges, 
right? So, for example, if a bank, hold, if a GSIB holds uh, liquidity with another bank, as happens in the hundreds of billions, you need to allocate uh, additional GSIB um, capital charges of up to 3.5%. You can't escape from the fact that these charges exist in the system. You can disguise where they are, but you can't get rid of them. You can only do that by changing the underlying plumbing of the model, which is to move away from liability accounts. Okay. Do you... I agree that there are new paradigms, and I think that's part of our argument, part of our value prop is we will support old paradigms, new paradigms, digital currencies. It's part of the payment orchestration magic we've built. But I want to follow up on one of Phil's comments, which is if the back end doesn't change, he's worried about the back end. I passionately agree with that. But let me explain how I worry about it, but how I don't worry about it. Throughout the history of correspondent banking, the largest correspondent banks in the world that may have 50 or 500 or 5,000 financial institutions around the world they're clearing foreign payments for. They have come to depend on trust as a way of securing those payments, that they trust the foreign financial institution has good anti-money laundering policies, good KYC policies. And we hear about the risks of the gray list countries where uh, it's been determined that they have inadequate these policies. Imagine a world where the infrastructure is changed. Let me back up. So the, the, in the correspondent bank, when they've gone to their regulator and said, we're going to clear foreign-initiated payments from around the world, the regulator says, well, what's your policy to do due diligence on those foreign banks? How are you going to inspect uh, some, some, set of their tr- some subset of their transactions to make sure they did a good job in KYC? So all of these correspondent banks go to their regulator and they build a business plan that says, we're going to expect 0.001% of transactions and we're going to check that the, the, ba- the foreign bank did a good job on KYC. But what if, and this is the beauty of what we do, which, which is supplemental to the payment getting there in four minutes. What if the correspondent bank or the clearing institution in a country on 100% of the payments that they're clearing before they get released into their country, they know who the disperser is. They know the name of the disperser. They know what sanctions checks have been done on that disperser if it's a business. They know the names of the owners, officers, and directors of that business. They know what sanctions checks have been done on them. They know that an electronic ID verification has been done. They know their commercial activity or source of funds, and they know why they're paying someone. For the first time ever, they have absolute transparency and visibility to all of this data. One central banker asked me, he said, Gary, we talked to the Fed president. We were wondering, is there a safer way to secure these transactions? Because we can't get it. What you've created is a breakthrough. We don't think there's a safer way that you can actually analyze and interrogate 100% of all the transactions before we receive them. And the bank has the knowledge of all that data that they've never had before. I said, there is a better way. How is it possible? Because now we give the bank the choice. They can accept the results or they can rerun them on our platform. So now the correspondent bank in one country not only has what the FDIC calls see-through to actually know who the originator is, but now they can, for the first time ever, execute real-time, know their customer's customer, and rerun the check if they want to. This is the essence of software and technology infrastructure that wraps itself around the process from beginning to end And all of that rips massive cost and risk 
and time out of the equation. You can plug that into the old liquidity models. Fine. I'm okay with it. Keep it the way you want. Focus on all these other things. Or you can also plug into new liquidity models like for MasterCard. But it goes much deeper and wider than just liquidity. Okay. So we are running out of time, but I do have one question and um, you touched upon it there. And um, I was wondering, Phil, as well, if you know where the regulator will fit into um, when it comes to cross-border payments as we go forward. It's a good question. Um, you know, after the great financial crisis, we um, had the creation of the FSB, which set out by the G20 to set out the international cooperation, both for the arrangement of the Basel arrangements and, and to set out the cross-border plan. Um, and uh, to date, that's been, well, um, uh, a spectacular failure. They've not made any real success in in, in, in progressing the 21-point plan, 19-point plan, uh, and are trenching back to three possibly, and maybe they can find a different way of doing it. Um, and the and the reason is is that you know global cooperation amongst twenty countries that have got very diverse uh, profiles is really quite a challenging thing to do and perhaps was overly ambitious in the first place. So what should regulators do? Uh, and the answer is they need to focus more on what I would call taking. In my opinion, it's just my opinion. It's nothing to do with my business. Is they need to take a a kind of tiered approach uh, and form bilateral relationships or smaller groups of countries to work with with whom they can improve the relationships. And I know the UK government, for example, has published paperwork in February, in April on about doing something like that with the Indian government um, and in stating initiatives about that. And perhaps that will be one of the first opportunities. But certainly uh, bilateral models of cooperation cross-border are more likely to bear fruit or have narrower groups of interest that are more aligned. Okay, Gary, do you have anything to add? Well, I, I think this is one of the toughest jobs on the planet is to be a regulator and worrying about cross-border payments. I completely empathize with the struggles that a regulator faces because they're charged with protecting the safety and soundness of their payment system in their country, yet the global economy depends on cross-border trade, which are categorized as high-risk. And the IMF for the United Nations has reported that up to 5% of the global GDP is laundered through banks. Think about that, 5% of the global GDP. So if you're a regulator and there's an absence of tools until we build our software, there's been an absence of tools. And so you're a regulator and you're trying to balance the needs of your country, protecting it and ensuring safety and soundness, while at the same time recognizing you're a part of a global e ecosystem that depends on global trade. So you kind of hold your nose. You do your best to, to fix things and regulate around it, but then you hold your nose and close your eyes and just hope that, that you keep your economy going by allowing cross-border trade and nothing really stinky gets through. Okay, well, that's all we got time for today. So thank you very much, guys. Thank you. If you are interested to know more about some of the proposed solutions we've discussed, you can read more about it in our white paper titled King for a Day, Solving Cross-Border Payments One Piece at a Time. Head to the Payments Association website to download your copy now. Thank you, Gary and Phil, for joining us today. Join us again soon on Payments Insights. To access more podcasts, videos and articles, go to thepaymentsassociation.org.